Tēnā koutou katoa and hello everybody. Welcome to the Lenton Intervention Podcast. My name is Ben Adelberg and I'm coming to you from Tamaki Makoro, Auckland. And g'day, I'm Emma Strutt and I'm currently coming to you from Gungaloo country in Queensland. Before we dive into our conversation today, I'd just like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. The Lento Intervention is an Australasian educational and advocacy platform dedicated to raising awareness about the current climate and health crisis. And on this podcast, we invite guests to chat about topics that will inspire you to take action to improve your own health and the health of the planet. So please subscribe to and share this podcast and visit our website for the full show notes. And don't forget to buy us a coffee if you'd like to support our work. Conversations based on science to raise awareness about our growing climate and health crisis. That's what we're about. And our recent episodes have certainly gone deep into some key areas. Now, in this episode, we are hoping to focus a little more on solutions, achievable solutions. Or are they? Emma? Dum, dum, dum. <laughs> <laughs> so today we're sitting down with Dr. Jack Santa Barbara, a retired CEO and academic who wears many different hats, including author, environmental activist, peace activist and philanthropist. For many years, Jack has been writing about and focusing his work on topics such as environmental concerns, economic models, energy concerns, social justice, sustainability, um, all very big topics to unpack. So Ben and I are very much looking forward to this conversation. I think it'll be a very thought-provoking discussion today. Jack, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, pleasure to be here. I look forward to our chat. Now, this you are a referral from Dr. Mike Joy. A, uh, I'm going to say a loyal supporter of ours, and uh, so high expectations. But um, Indeed. before no we, <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. But um, as I always say, like a good story, we always want to start with a bit of a background, get to know our guest. And uh, as Emma alluded to her in her intro, you have your fingers in so many pies, have had in so many pies as well. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your your life journey. Yeah, well, I guess one of the reasons I've done so many things is because I'm so old. <laughs> it gives you <laughs> lot, lot, lots of opportunities to uh, try different things. Um, I, I sort of started my education uh, with a PhD in uh, experimental social psychology and did uh, a PhD in conflict resolution. And... Um, <clears throat> I followed that up with some academic uh, work, teaching and studying, and then started doing some consulting um, around various things, largely program evaluation type things, evaluating uh, social and health programs. And this is back in Canada uh, many, many decades ago, a long, long time ago. Um, but along the way, um, I married an Australian gal uh, who came to Canada to, uh, to study. And we had a child around the time that Ronald Reagan was talking about a winnable nuclear war. And I remember Joanna holding Jeff in her arms and saying, this is not good. <laughs> and I need to do something about it. And so she joined, she was a physician. And so she joined the Physicians Peace Movement. Uh, it was an international group that actually won the Nobel Peace Prize back, I think, in 85. Again, a, a long time ago. Um, but that uh, experience um, brought us in touch with a number of 
physicians from around the world, including physicians from the third world and uh, Nicaragua in particular, which is, as you're aware, one of the, the poorest countries on the planet. And uh, we were invited to, to visit our friends there, which we did. And that um, was a real eye opener. You know, it's one thing to read about poverty and see pictures about it, but to, to actually be there and, and, and experience it uh, firsthand was, was, was quite a, uh, a shock in some ways, but, but also an incredible education, uh, you know, and help us to understand what, what was really going on. And what, what our friends helped us to understand was that a lot of the problem was with the developed world and the way we were developed and developing and uh, basically exploiting them and keeping them undeveloped. And that got me interested in alternative economic systems, which uh, then brought and led me to the topic of ecological economics. And I don't know whether you've come across that topic. It's, it's, it's to be distinguished from environmental economics. They're two quite different uh, branches. Uh, environmental economics, which is something people are generally more familiar with, basically looks at this whole issue of external externalized cost. You know, um, if a coal plant uh, spews out pollution and dirty someone's laundry, that's a, an externality that the coal plant doesn't pay for. And the, 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 the families whose laundry is dirty has to rewash it and they pay for it. Well, as you're well aware, there's a whole range of externalized costs and what environmental economics largely tries to do is to internalize those costs, is to count them. And um, while there's some value in that, there's also quite a few problems with it, uh, which I won't go into because it's probably a bit of a side issue. But I just wanted to distinguish it from ecological economics because environmental economics basically accepts all of the assumptions and premises of neoliberal economics, our, our dominant economic system. Whereas ecological economics takes a totally different approach. It really reconceptualizes economics and tries to base it in science. That's where the ecology comes from. And um, even though it's, it's ecological, it, it has a strong input from physics and thermodynamics. <laughs> and again, we won't get into that because it was probably a bit too esoteric. But the point is, it's, it's, it's an economic system that takes into account the realities of the real world, which our current economic system does not do. That's, that's perhaps the most important thing to appreciate. And so it really looks at the whole issue of biophysical limits. You know, if we're going to have an economy uh, to meet our needs, how do we do that in a way that recognizes what the biophysical limits are? So coming back to sort of my personal story that you asked about um, is as a result of, of learning about ecological economics and trying to understand, you know, how our, our dominant economic system was actually having an impact on the broader world. Uh, I saw it primarily in social terms. Uh, 
Um, but when I, I, um, I started a business and ran it for 20 years or so and sold it because I got interested in doing more in this area of ecological economics, even though I'm neither an ecologist nor an economist. Um, but what interested me was the whole issue of, of limits to growth. You know, I had read the, the book, Meadows, The Limits to Growth, and I understood it, but I always thought it was something in the future. And then when I, when I sold my business at the end of the last millennia, I took a course in climate change at the University of Toronto. And it just blew my mind because I realized for the first time that we had actually gone beyond the limits of the natural world. And whereas I had thought it was always going to be something in the future and that we could we could avoid it if we were wise enough to realize that we had actually reached these limits and that you know our, our human activity, our, our economic system was responsible for altering basic human life support systems that the planet that evolved on the planet was pretty shocking. And um, so that led me to, you know, look at, at the climate issues and, and that inevitably brings you to the energy issues because energy of course drives everything. And that was the second big shock <laughs> because it came to realize that the sort of future that we had anticipated and was the sort of dominant theme of what our future is going to be about unlimited growth and progress and all these wonderful things. When you realize that the role of fossil fuels in the development of our current civilization and the fact that fossil fuels are first of all non-renewable, so at some point, you know, they're not going to be available. But more than that, to realize that the, the, the a, a topic um, that really loomed up large for me was uh, net energy analysis. And is that something that's familiar to you, folks, or is it has it been talked about in your ser series? Definitely, and our talking points to 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 delve a little deeper in there for sure. Yeah, well, it's a it's a very simple concept, although it's it's largely ignored. But the the concept is simply that it takes energy to make to produce energy, and you know it's kind of like a paycheck. You know, you get a gross pay, but then you have all kinds of deductions, and what you take home, which you can actually use, is your net pay. Well, net energy is like that. Uh, net energy is the energy we actually get to do things with in society you know, build roads, keep our houses warm, whatever we need, we use energy for. But in the early days of fossil fuels, the net energy return was in excess of 100 to 1. So, you know, for one unit of energy that you use to get oil, you got 100 units back. You know, if you imagine your bank account like that, you know, it'd be pretty, pretty nice uh, return. So there was really not much point in distinguishing between gross and net because it was, it was minuscule difference. You know, it, it was magic because previously, prior to the fossil fuel era, when we relied on wood and animal power, largely a little bit of wind, maybe windmills, but you know, we maybe had 15 to one, 20 to one at, at most. Um, so we were going from that 15 to one 
to a hundred to one. You know, it was it was like magic so, suddenly to have this. Uh, you know, we think of gas as cheap, whereas petroleum is as expensive. Um, but when you think that even if you pay three dollars for a liter of petrol, you know, how far can your car go, your vehicle, on one liter? You know, maybe thirty kilometers. You know, depending upon your your fuel efficiency. Well, think of pushing your vehicle 30 kilometers and the amount of energy involved. Hmm. And would you do that for three bucks? Is that the way? I was thinking the your... amount of calories it would take <laughs> me to run 30 Ks and the amount of energy bars and gels and all that. Definitely not three dollars. <laughs> <laughs> well, think of think of pushing, you know, a 2000 pound a kilogram, um, you know, vehicle of that distance. And that, that's what that's what three mm. bucks of petroleum does for us. It's its magic, really, when we sort of step back and think about it. Um, and we're, we're, you know, the engineers who work in the petroleum industry are very clever. So they knew how to get the easiest to obtain energy early on. You know, they, they went for the easy stuff. And now our uh, net energy from petroleum or from fossil fuels in general is, is, is down from 100 to 1 to currently around 20 to 1 or even less. So we're actually approaching what the pre-fossil fuel era net energy return uh, ratio was. But it's been been hidden because we don't feel it because so much we rely so much on embedded energy. I mean, here we are using this complex high tech computer system to communicate with each other in three different locations. And think of all the embedded energy and all of the, you know, not not just our headsets and our PCs, but our homes, <laughs> the furniture in them, the the power system that keeps them, you know, lit and 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 warm and so on so we're we're living with an enormous amount of embedded energy uh that we've used over the last century in a bit but primarily in the last 70 years um it's really really the you know if you look at the curves the uptake is uh really very sharp around 1950 that's when petroleum started to be used um, in, in larger and larger, ever larger quantities. And that's when population increased. It's when GDP increased. It's when, uh, you know, water uptake increased. It's, it's when a whole range of things changed and happened. And, and now we're in a situation where we have to deal with a whole range of, of things. You know, Ben, you talked about solutions. We want to talk about solutions. Well, we're in a predicament, predicament. <laughs> that I'm not sure has the kind of solutions we're used to. You know, you you look at a problem, you, you do some problem solving, you do some brainstorming, you come up with options, you you choose the best and hopefully you can eliminate the problem. Well, we're, we've gotten to a point where we may be beyond that and, and we're gonna be suffering some of the consequences. And that's, that's what's really um, scary and um, but hopefully also motivating for people because, you know, <laughs> there, there's something about in, in the communication industry, they talk about you have to be positive all the time. 
Yes, but we also need to understand the value of fear. Fear, fear is a, a human response that evolved to give us a warning about something. So it's a signal that you need to pay attention. It's a, it's a signal, it's our, our bodies and our minds alerting us to the fact that there, there are risks approaching and that we need to take action of some sort. So I, I think it's important to be able to face the, um, the, the challenges that we face and understand them in, in some depth in order to know what our best course of action is. But it may not be the kind of simple solution where there, you know, there's the, the, it's going to eliminate something. But um, I think there are many, many things that can be done to uh, reduce the risk and and to make the um, make make the future livable. But <laughs> having said that, uh, it's it's going to take some pretty dramatic changes in mindset, I think. And and some of the biggest challenges are, are between our, our ears, you know, and how we perceive things and look at things. Um, climate change is, is, you know, the, the, the perhaps the best understood of our major global challenges at the moment because of the attention it's been getting, you know, over the last many years. But I and, and you know, I'm, uh, this isn't unique with me. I'm really following some scientists who are saying that the, the, there's a more basic problem that, of which climate change is only one symptom. Um, and there's a whole range of other symptoms, biodiversity loss being another, um, pollution of air, water, soil, another. Um, you know, I was just reading an article yesterday about nanoparticles and how pervasive they've become. And um, and and science scientists really don't know a lot about how they're going to act on biological systems. So we've created all these things that that pose existential risks to us. And um, the, the biggest concern that I have is that so many people are looking for solutions in the wrong direction. And the, the biggest one perhaps being the whole idea of renewable energy. And I know that was on your list of topics that you wanted to, um, to chat about. And the, um, we know from the climate research that we have to stop using fossil fuels. They're, they're, altering our global climate systems. And I'm sure you and your, your other listeners are well aware of the dramatic consequences of that, if, especially if it goes unchecked. And if we don't uh, use the very small window of time that we have to reduce emissions and, and bring um, atmospheric levels down. But people seem to be confused about whether they can do that without replacing the energy that currently comes from fossil fuels. 
And I think it's incredibly important to realize they're two quite different dynamics and processes. We can stop using fossil fuels without re, you know, replacing everything with renewable energy. So that's one point I think that bears some contemplation and, and uh, looking at. The, um, the other thing about renewable energy is that it's not renewable. It's a misnomer. It's a huge misconception about how renewable energy technologies work. Let's let's take uh, solar and wind, you know, the most common. And there's so much in the news about uh, how inexpensive they've become, which is true. And they work brilliantly. Uh, I mean, we're, we live off grid. Uh, we have for 15 years and, um, you know, manage with about a what is it, um, a fifth or less of the average New Zealand um, energy consumption, um, just because you don't need it all, you know. But, but the, the, the point I want to make about re, so-called renewables is that while the technology is there, it's, it's usable technology, it's becoming increasingly less expensive, but it's not renewable. <laughs> The sun and the wind are renewable. I mean, they, they, the, you know, as long as the sun is in the sky, we're going to have solar power and, and wind. I mean, everything goes back to the, to the sun. You know, wind is generated by weather patterns caused by, by heating. Um, it's the technology that's used to capture the sun and the wind that requires mining, that requires rare elements and minerals. That, and, and you can't do that without fossil fuels. We're, we're in a bind. At a time when we need to be reducing our fossil fuel use, people are talking about increasing its use to do what we're doing now, but in addition, build up a renewable energy infrastructure to replace fossil fuels. And there's several problems with that. That are that are really important for people to understand. I want to come back to to net energy as one of the important issues with respect to that. And all so-called renewable energy sources have lower net energy returns than fossil fuels. Solar is about ten to one. Uh, wind with the very large Turbines can be up to 18 or 20 to one is probably the highest. The, the only exception to that is um, d dams, you know, water power hydro. from from dams, hydro hydroelectric power. Yeah, but but even those are not really renewable in the same sense because dams eventually silt up. So they they may be very long term, you know, they may be usable for more than a century, but what do you do after that? And there's this challenge of storage as well, the solar and, 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 you know, the wind blows great, but hang on, what if it blows at the wrong time of the day or the week when you need the peak yeah, power usage exactly. and, and solar's only on a sunny day? Exactly. And, and the, the, the technology to do the storage, again, while there's, you know, every day you can look at the news and see innovations in it. 
but it all requires mining and, and uh, rare elements and minerals. There, there's a Spanish group of researchers. I think they're in Barcelona. They do, they've done a lot of work for the EU on renewable energy. And they have very, very sophisticated uh, computer modeling where they're able to look at climate issues, energy issues, economic issues, all within the same um, simulations. And they've done a simulation looking at the replacement of fossil fuels with renewables, so-called renewables. Uh, you know, and they looked at different levels of replacement, you know, 50% replacement, 75, 100% replacement. And what they find is a couple of really major findings. One is that the amount of fossil fuels needed to build the system would push us over the two or three degrees warming that we need to avoid. Okay, so that's one point. The, the other bind is that while individual solar panels and wind turbines have the net energy return that I just quoted you a minute ago, if you add the element that you mentioned, Ben, the you know, storage, there's again, lots of energy inputs required, lots of mineral inputs. So if you look at the net energy, not of individual units, but of an entire renewable system, the net energy return reduces to less than five to one, which is lower than pre-fossil fuel era. Because you lose a lot as well. In, in well, that's process. it. I mean, yeah. absolutely. And, and this hydrogen stuff, you know, I mean, Hydrogen is not a fuel, it's a battery. You have to put energy into it to get energy out. And whenever you do that, whenever you transform from one system to another, you, you, there's a loss involved. So, so hydrogen is net energy negative. <laughs> You're always going to lose energy in, in a hydrogen system. So it's, it's quite inefficient which doesn't mean it doesn't have a role, but it's going to have a very narrow application where direct use of say uh, solar or, or wind, you know, will not make sense. So, so there's that issue as well uh, with renewables. And, and in addition, there's the whole issue of rare earth minerals. There's um, uh, actually he's an Aussie, but he's currently in Finland working with the, um, the Finnish Geological Survey, Simon Michaud. He's a, uh, uh, I think he's a geologist. He's, he's worked in the energy field for quite a while. And he's he's been looking at the um, global supplies of these rare earth minerals, and there just ain't enough. You know, if, if the amounts required by the ramping up of a renewable replacement system uh, were to be used or, or the amount needed is in excess, in some cases, in excess of the known reserves. 
for those particular minerals. Oftentimes it's done in poorer regions of the world too, isn't it? Where corporate responsibility is a bit questionable. So then you're opening. Social injustice. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, um, I mean, even. Displacement of communities. Well, there's that, but there's also the, the other aspect is that, you know, if anyone's going to get access to whatever minerals are available, it's going to be the wealthy northern nations. But again, we're going to be using those at the, you know, all, all the injustices that you talked about in terms of the mining and whatnot, uh, and the displacement of, of uh, native peoples. But they're not going to be able to, to have the same technology. You know, we're, we're going to be depriving them of, of the... Um, of the same technologies that we're going to be developing. The point I wanted to make was that in, in terms of renewable energy systems, you know, there's there's the issue of low net energy, there's the issue of storage, there's the issue of rare earth minerals, there's the, the justice issue about whose land those rare minerals and, and so on are on. But there's another another one. And again, this is often ignored, but these things wear out. You know, a wind turbine, I don't know what its life is, but let's let's say it's 30 years or 40 years and, and you've got to you know, renew that entire system producing energy uh, globally or nas- nationally. I mean, here in New Zealand right now, people are talking about increasing the uh, electricity system by about at least 70 to 80 percent. And, you know. Using using fossil fuels um, and and uh, you know it's 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 just clear so clearly so obviously unsustainable from an ecological perspective. Putting aside all the social injustices and and inequalities and so on, um, you know it's it's staring us in the face. But the technology is so sexy and so seductive that we go for it. You know, we, we've relied on technology. We're using technology. Technology is wonderful. It's magic, but it's not our future. It's not our long-term future. And, and this is what is, I think, very shocking to, you know, people who really want to grapple with these issues and understand them of how different, you know, life needs to be. And it sounds scary, but it doesn't have to be scary. It's It's only scary because we haven't, really thought about the alternatives and and uh, we can get into that if, if you like but why don't i i stop there i kind of <laughs> um been, been going on and, and give you a chance to um you know ask any questions about clarifications or taking them in a direction that you think would be helpful yeah. we've got a number of questions emma do you want to go first because that, that's we, we banked them in, in our heads one. I did. I mean, look, there's a number of questions and how far back do we go in in this discussion so far? But, you know, it's the externalities that you've made reference to a little earlier that we don't take into account. And and you've spoken about the the net energy cost or the the cost or net energy or the cost of energy. You mentioned one thing. I mean, this is more clarification because you mentioned that the net energy for for petroleum, petroleum used to be 100 to 1 and that's now down to about 20 to 1, maybe even 15. Is what's, I mean, first question, why? Is that because of fracking and the difficulty of now extracting more of that crude oil out of the ground? Or what's what's yeah. pushed that, that cost up? Or that ratio down, rather? Yeah, well, many, many people have seen the um, old oil wells from the early 
part of the oil um, era. You know, there'd be huge wooden tower structures and there'd be oil spurting out the top. Okay, yeah. well, th those are, th that's what was is called conventional oil. And conventional oil is where there's oil and gas mixed together in the ground. And the engineering task was, was quite simple. You figured out where the deposit was and you poked a hole in the ground. And then you stood there with your containers and you, you know, it got pushed out and you just collected it. And that's why it was 100 to 1. It was, it was truly magic. Well, every oil well generally has more oil than gas. So before all the oil is pushed out, the gas is dissipated. Okay, so it, it runs out of gas before it runs out of oil. So what the, the engineers do is to pump other gases, even like carbon dioxide or even water. I mean, Saudi Arabia pumps seawater into Gowar, which is their largest, one of their largest uh, fields. Um, so pumping that gas or oil, or, or I'm sorry, water into the wells to push the oil out takes energy. So that reduces the net you get back. Okay. And, but that, <clears throat> that's still with a conventional well. And it happens to every conventional well on the planet. Um, and most of the conventional wells have peaked in most nations where they were producing conventional oil, you know, mixed with gas, have peaked in terms of the volume of production that they, they, they have. Um, so the engineers have now turned to unconventional sources. This are deep sea, for example, Arctic drilling, tar sands, fracking. I mean, just think of the, you know, uh, deep sea oil wells. You know, think of those enormous structures. They're like tiny cities <laughs> on stilts that, you know, are out there in the ocean. And they may be a couple of kilometers above the ocean floor before they even get to the soil where they then drill down below the ocean floor a few more kilometers. All of that takes enormous amounts of energy. The Canadian tar sands, which is an enormous deposit in terms of size, is imagine a beach impregnate it with oil. That's what it, that's what it's like. The the oil doesn't flow. It has to be heated. The sand that they they um, you know dig up has to be heated with natural gas in order to make it flow through pipes. The Canadians have actually considered building nuclear reactors up in the Alberta tar sands to provide the heat to warm the, you know, the, the tar sand gas. Um, fracking, you know, it's, it's, it's shale, shale oil. It's, it's, it's oil impregnated in rock so that it has to be blasted apart, uh, often using, you know, high pressure systems 
and liquids that then contaminate water sources. Uh, so there's huge amounts of energy inputs to these unconventional sources. And that's what changes the net energy equation. The, the, there's another really interesting to me and an important point I think about it, and that is that the people that research these things, and, and there are several groups around the world that, that do this kind of research on net energy, have a hard time getting data about this stuff because some of the largest oil producing companies are, are national companies. They're owned by sheikdoms or, um, you know, pro basically private parties. So, so they, they don't have to disclose certain kinds of information from which these sort of data can be analyzed. So, that's part of the problem. There's just not, not um, good. Well, the, 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 there's data that's good enough to get a general idea of what's happening, and, and there's clearly um, a decline in net energy from petroleum. They've, there's also enough data about natural gas, and that's also declined. In fact, both petroleum and natural gas peak energy. Peak net return, okay, not not peak volume, but peak ener net energy return has is already passed. Like we're, we're we're never going to have the same net energy return from petroleum or natural gas that we have in the past. Peak net energy return for coal hasn't happened yet, and that's one of the reasons why we haven't felt the decline from the other fossil fuels as much as we will in the future. But coal is projected to peak in net energy return terms um, anytime in the next two decades. So in your, within your lifetimes, uh, it's going to happen. And that's going to be very dramatic because all the fossil fuel sources will have passed their peak net energy return features. And, and that's going to mean a dramatic decline in uh, net energy available. And, and you have to also think about net energy per capita, because obviously the more people, you know, uh, having to share diminishing energy resources. Um, I mean, that's why we're having conflicts. You know, wars. I mean, there are many, many wars were have been resource wars. So that that's that's why net energy returns are changing. Well, the cheap energy is certainly um, in the last maybe century. It's it's allowed society in general to increase the quality of life. So we've probably seen a, a greater proportion of middle income because cheap energy. You know, we're able to make more stuff. It's more readily available, but that means then the demands long term, we've got a higher proportion of our global population that now needs that higher energy. And when you talk about our, our reliance that we don't realize, but our reliance on coal, New Zealand still imports a considerable amount of coal into the country. Australia still exports a fair amount of coal globally. And I know there's been more recent activity where, you know, trying to reduce the amount of new coal mines and so on. But that is a reality. And if we still haven't hit the peak coal, 
or peak uh, net energy, then yeah, we're in we're in for a considerable amount of tr trouble. And the other thing with with the whole replacement of the like for like, because that's all we're doing, we're replacing a combustion vehicle with with an electric vehicle. But again, going back to your point about the externalities, you know, the the all the, we've covered it already, but all the the impact implications of creating that vehicle, and more importantly, the batteries that have a limited lifespan, we can potentially maybe if we have enough minerals globally to replace the whole global fleet, but we can't replace that once it's past its five year lifespan, who knows of a battery, yeah. what do we do with that? So I think, yeah, there, there's been a lot of positive, perhaps, with this cheaper energy, but it's now creating a bigger reliance that we're going to feel, uh, uh, um, or it's going to result in a greater impact on society globally. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's the, um, this is the big dilemma and, and, and irony, really, in many ways that we, we face. Um, I mean, fossil fuels have given us enormous opportunities and, and, and features and technologies and, and growth. Um, but, you know, when you, in fact, I've, I've, I've just written an article about this in terms of how economic growth can be uneconomic. And again, this is not, you know, my idea. I'm, I'm, I'm parroting the ecological economist on this. Um, but if you look at the economic growth is all about increasing GDP, right? And it only counts expenditures. It doesn't count costs. So the cost, for example, of associated with climate change are not included. I mean, if you, you couldn't run a business that way, you couldn't run a business by only counting your income and not counting any of your cost. And yet we, we run our economies based on GDP by only counting economic activity, but not the cost associated with that economic activity. Now, I'm just talking about dollar costs, never mind the other value issues that, you know, go way beyond the dollars. Um, I mean, how do you how do you count in dollar terms the impact of climate change if we exceed three degrees Celsius? You know, I mean, it's it's you can't measure it. It's it's it doesn't make sense even to to think about that. Um, well, I mean, it does make sense to think about it, but it does make sense to to um, you know, assume that we can we can get away with it. We can we do those things. So there's lots of evidence actually that the net outcome of our economic activity is a loss. So economic growth in terms of GDP growth, because the the costs are actually greater than the benefits, it's a net loss. So it's uneconomic in that sense. You know, that's that's one of the paradoxes of our time. What what should our goals for the economy be then? Like if we're hyper focused at the moment on growth and, and it's a more, you know, linear model to allow for the well being of people and planet, what what should we be transitioning to? Well, you you've said it, well being of people and planet. And and um you know, there's there's a lot of uh recent work on well being. You're probably aware there's a well being alliance 
a global well-being alliance. And there's a, there's a group in um, New Zealand, uh, well-being alliance group. But the, and, and, and you're probably aware as well that in New Zealand, uh, we have a well-being budget. Our, our um, treasury department has been developing a well-being budget. And I think those are really important uh, initiatives. The concerns I have about them is that they do not focus on what to me are should be the priorities. And, and that is, there's, there's an, again, entire research uh, area on basic human needs. These are needs that transcend time and culture so that they're universal in the sense that uh, if you're human, <laughs> you know, you need food, water, shelter, uh, companionship. Um, you need a place in community, a role in community. You need a voice in community. You need a sense of identity in terms of relating to that community. The, these are all needs that are expressed quite differently in different cultures over different periods of time, but they're still basic human needs. And while there's some, you know, academic arguments about, you know, exactly what might be included or excluded as, as a basic need, um, you know, there's, there's, there's enough consensus on the core that, um, to, to me, it's a really useful framework to think about basic human needs because we take them for granted in, in the highly industrialized complex society that we have. And we assume that, well, that, that, of course, those are going to be looked after. You know, we, we can deal with the more esoteric, um, more refined, you know, kinds of issues. But if we're really moving to a lower energy future, we, we need to start thinking about how we use energy. We are incredibly wasteful of energy. I mean, our most basic energy source is food, right? And we waste 30 to 50% of the food from the farm is wasted. And, and it's, it's done quite differently in different parts of the world. In, in poor countries, they, they lose a lot to storage. You know, mice and rodents and vermin get into it. But in developed countries like ours, most of it is wasted between the supermarket and the garbage can. You know, and, and it, we grow here in, in our home most of our, as much of our own food as we can. We rarely have a meal that doesn't involve several items from our garden or, or our storage. And, and to me, wasting a little tiny item of food is one of the biggest sins you can commit, you know, and yet we take it for granted because it, it you know, food is used to be cheap and it's getting more expensive and that's just going to continue. But um, understanding what our basic needs are and working together to ensure that those basic needs can be met in an equitable fashion 
to me is one of the big conversations we have to have in communities of all sizes, you know, whether it's a neighborhood or, or an, an, a state or a region or a nation and, and globally, because we, we've been indoctrinated. I don't know if you, you folks or your, your listeners are familiar with a, um, a BBC documentary called, let me hope I can remember the name. Yeah, it's The Century of the Self. It's a documentary about the role of the marketing and advertising industry uh, in the developed world and how it has indoctrinated us to expect that our wishes, not our needs, but our wishes would be fulfilled. And, and it, it's, it's an interesting documentary because it very explicitly states that its purpose was to create these wishes beyond needs so that our technologically advanced manufacturing systems could be continued to be productive by producing stuff that people would then demand because it satisfied their, their wishes. That way of thinking seems to be quite essential for continuing with economic growth, doesn't it? Making sure that people are buying things to keep the economy ticking over. Um, so what what can we do as individuals to kind of start to change the dial here? What do we need to take on board? Yeah, that's a really big question. <laughs> Whilst maintaining or increasing our well-being, I think that's important. You know, we're talking about the well-being but how do we do that? Well, I think that's absolutely right. And, and, it, and you're quite right to focus on well-being. And I would, again, emphasize thinking in terms of basic human needs as opposed to, you know, our more refined aspirations and idiosyncratic wishes. Okay. Uh, to me, that's a really, really important distinction. Um, and it's going to take time for us to make that kind of transition and adjustment in our way of thinking because we're we're all spoiled we're, we're used to having our wishes i mean we may daily feel frustrated <laughs> frustrations but if you think step back and think about it you know um we were incredibly privileged and and uh, uh spoiled um you know if you if you look at the history of of humans you know, we, we live, you know, much more comfortably and at a higher standard than people could have imagined even even a century ago, you know. Um, and so and that's partly, I think, why the whole issue of downsizing is, is so scary. And, and Emma, I think your question, I think, you know, uh, one of the most important things, I think, is our attitude toward these things. You know, if we if we can accept the biophysical realities of limits to growth, and we can accept that we are way, way, way over limits, we're not just approaching these limits, we're way beyond them, so that we actually have to reduce our consumption by 80 or 90 percent, okay? In, in terms of material consumption, 
Now that sounds really scary. And, and you know, if you're thinking in, in terms of growing the economy and, and uh, you know, progress forever and technology will save us, it, it's, it's, it's heretical. <laughs> but, but the science is there. Um, so trying to understand the real limits is one thing that individuals can do. And I think you folks are doing a great job with this series of podcasts to help people come to grips with that sort of thing. And, and it's, it's, we, we need many, many, many of these sort of things for people to, to really stop and think about, you know, what, what life is about, what well-being is about, you know, what a good life is about, because we have been conditioned to believe something that's a lie or that was at least, at least was possible with fossil fuels, but is not going to be, you know, with the future. And this isn't going to happen tomorrow or, you know, next month or next year even, but it's a process. And so if you understand the process and can prepare yourself and your family and your friends and your community and go in the right direction, then you're going to make the best use of resources that you have available. One of the things that really bothers me about the idea of, you know, the renewable energy system just allowing us to keep going the way we we have been. And people talk about, oh, well, what about nuclear fusion? You know, we, we, we can get unlimited energy from nuclear fusion. Well, one of the worst things that could happen to humanity and the planet is to have more cheap, abundant energy. I mean, look at the damage we've done with fossil fuels, you know. So trying to understand that these things are not conspiracy theories. They're not, you know, the kinds of ideas that come from, um, I, I don't know what. I mean, there, there are scientists who are telling us that we're passing these planetary boundaries and that it's going to have consequences. There's there's good science behind the stuff. Yeah, it's all kinds of, of good stuff out there. Um, but it doesn't, because it's so counter to the existing system, it, it's marginalized. So people have to be prepared to be marginalized uh, and, and you know, go against the, the, the stream, if you will, to even understand some of these issues, nonetheless adapt to them, you know. But the, the other, the, there's a whole other line of research to, to me, I think is fascinating and very relevant here. And that is over the last few decades, there's been a lot of research on what makes people happy. And I don't mean in a, in a temporary way, but in a longer term, you know, like life satisfaction type happy. And, uh, you know, it gives people a sense of satisfying, having a satisfying life. And yes, we, we need certain mineral materials and energy levels to do that. But what's, what's really, really interesting is that you don't need a lot of material and energy resources to meet your basic needs 
because basic needs can be satiated, right? You can eat just so much, you know? You, you can be just so warm. Uh, you can be just so protected with a, with a structure, with a shelter. Um, so, so one of the important things about basic needs is that they can, in fact, be, be fulfilled, whereas our wishes can never be. You know, our wishes are endless, they're infinite. You know, we have incredible creative imaginations. We can always think of something more that we might like. Um, so if, if you look at the um, curve of, um, say, either income or, or energy, and, you know, over very low levels, is a linear relationship between any kind of well-being measure, whether it's happiness or more objective measures of well-being, like access to nutritional food. You know, at very low levels of money or energy, uh, there's a, a linear relation. But up, up to a certain level, it levels off. You know, you go beyond a certain income or a certain amount of energy per capita available to people, and they're not any happier. They, they don't get more nutritious food or better health care or better education. You know, it levels off. And yet the, the levels at which it starts plateauing are way below what our nations or the developed nations use. For example, in energy terms, one of the units of energy is a gigajoules as, as a measure of energy. And there's lots of research that shows that about 100 gigajoules per person per year of energy is quite sufficient to provide lots of well-being um, measures, have well-being basically satisfied, 100 gigajoules per capita per person. North America, the per capita energy consumption is 350 gigajoules, three and a half times. Um, I don't know about Australian data, but New Zealand has, have one of the highest energy consumptions per capita. We, we consume about 200 gigajoules per person per year of energy. Double, double what we actually need, okay? So understanding some of this, I think is important because to get to your question, Emma, which I really haven't forgotten, is, you know, what, what can people do? Again, a lot of it is understanding, you know, taking the effort to listen to podcasts like you guys are doing understand what these issues are and realize that they're not as scary as the marketers would like you to believe because the marketers want you to believe it's scary <laughs> because suddenly their marketing is not effective anymore. Suddenly they don't get to, you know, sell stuff and, and create needs that are artificial and, and uh, things that are unnecessary, you know, and, and GDP isn't, um, increased. So, you know, it sounds, it sounds simple in some ways it is, 
but it, but it's very very challenging just because so much pressure and so many of our norms and institutions are oriented toward growth. You know, our money system, our money system doesn't work unless there's growth. You know? So so changes are needed in, in those big institutional things. But one of the things people can do is spend as little money as possible. <laughs> the less money you spend, the less damage you do to the environment. You know, the more you can become uh, a prosumer, if you heard that expression, prosumer, you know, the combination of being a consumer and, and producer. And to me, one of the most important things people can do is, is learn how to grow their own food. Basic energy source, it's fun, <laughs> it's pleasant being outside, it's healthy, um, it's local, <laughs> it's, it's cheap. <laughs> um, there, there's, and, and if you do it together with a group, it's all the more fun and more more productive you know it's actually more efficient to to do things that way so there's there's lots of things that can be done at a very personal level but it takes it, it's it's not like there's a formula it's it's you know we're, we're everybody's smart enough to figure out how to do these things if they have the right mindset and the way people do them will be different you know in terms of their circumstances and where they live and and their histories and so on. So it's the that's why I'm emphasizing the mindset as being so important and and rejecting the the, the mindset that growth and technology is what you know we we need. Um, it's not. What we need is focusing on basic human needs human well-being and working together to um, achieve those things. And, and there's a lot, a lot that can be done, you know. I mean, one of the things where we're just this past uh, weekend, we had a, in our little neighborhood here, uh, we had a meeting, about a half a dozen of us, about a, a car sharing program, you know. Um, you're probably aware there's some companies now operating with car sharing programs, you know, largely in big cities where the density, you know, makes it feasible for them from an economic point of view. Well, I want to try to demonstrate that it's possible to do that in a neighborhood, you know, where people can walk, in, you know, to a neighbor's to pick up a vehicle and, and uh, use it. And if you, if you have a system in place to car share, then it's also very easy to ride share. And, and so if you can actually reduce the number of vehicles that a group of families need, and you have fewer vehicles on the road, traveling less kilometers, then, then you're you know, reducing consumption. I mean, Replacing, you know, our, our fossil fuel fleet with EVs is, is a ridiculous idea because you've got, you know, producing EVs uses more fossil fuels than producing an ICE vehicle. 
So again, you know, are we really going to build up an EV fleet across the planet with using fossil fuels at a time when we need to reduce them? <laughs> it doesn't make sense. We, we have to think about, um, you know, reducing our consumption, spending less money, figuring out how to do things, um, whether it's it's clothing, whether it's food, whether it's uh, shelter. You know, there's there's lots of things that we can do together to uh, uh, to do that. Jack, you've done a phenomenal job in making under making us the listeners understand where the real problems lie. Uh, you know, we always go on about uh, effective communicators from the science community, and 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 you certainly delivered on that as well. But I'm also conscious we need to land this plane. Sure. You know, for me, one of the markers of, uh, of I guess, the benefits we've had in the last 100, 150 years because of this abundance of energy is life expectancy has gone up. But we also know concurrently, not that it's a direct effect, but, you know, in the medical system, there's an incredible amount of waste that comes from that. And that's a price to pay. You, there's a problem you have, you go to hospital, you get fixed, but there's a lot of waste that comes from that. It's a very simplistic way of looking at things. The other thing, you know, you talk about a lot of solutions. It's also very important not to fall in the trap of greenwashing. Something sounds sexy, looks sexy, and New Zealand's just announced they're embarking on this mission of, of hydrogen fueled planes, et cetera, nets, you know, carbon neutral, all that. But you have really made us understand where the truth behind a lot of those supposed solutions. Now, we understand how important it is. You talk about process, you talk about learning, you talk about adapting, all that takes time. But the reality is we don't have time. We've got a deadline. So my final question to you is, we know we need to embark on change. We know we need to start getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. And I only use the word uncomfortable because it's different to what we've become accustomed to. We know it needs to happen. My final question to you is, Will it actually happen, and will it happen soon enough? Well, I mean that's not up to me, <laughs> unfortunately. You know, it's it's up to all of us. Um, you know, I, I think that's. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure what else I can say about that. It really <laughs> is. It, it really yeah. is. It, it's it's about doing what you're doing. It's, again, I've 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 commented a couple of times on how important what you guys are doing with these um, podcasts and helping people, alerting people to these issues, because this is what it's going to take. It's going to take just repeating and repeating and repeating. And, you know, when, when uh, I want to say a couple of things, you know, about the greenwashing and the, you know, and the tech is going to save us stuff. Whenever anyone talks about a new energy technology, I always recommend to people, ask what the net energy return is of that new energy technology, because it's generally an ignored question and topic. What is the net energy return of that technology? And what would the net energy return of a system with that technology be? Because it's not just the individual unit you have to look at it in terms of a system and and i i told you about the the work the spanish group has done to show what the very low net energy from a system 
if, if it's a company that's recommending it, is selling something, be very skeptical. Be very skeptical. If it's a community group doing something together, that's where I think we're going to see some real change. And, and the community groups who are doing stuff, uh, whether it's a, you know, a car sharing program or, or a um, community garden, um, or, you know, just, just helping each other with whatever, uh, you know, sharing tools, um, sharing, sharing knowledge, I mean, repair cafes, um, you know, where, where people help each other fix stuff, you know, rather than throwing it out or replacing it. Uh, lots, lots is happening in, in, you know, those sort of informal areas. And it's going to be very hard to change the system. The system is so powerful, so ingrained, so dominate, so self-reinforcing that we really need to, as much as possible, create new systems for doing things, for helping each other, for meeting our basic needs together. You know, now, I mean, I'm, I'm not advocating, you know, going living in the woods and, you know, isolating yourself because it's, it's not practical. But as much as, again, it's a mindset, you know, learn to not pay attention to advertising, <laughs> you know, train yourself to avoid advertising. It's deadly. You know, it's, it's, it's not your friend. <laughs> um, you know, find, find the community groups. And if there aren't any, start one, <laughs> you know, there's, there's bound to be people in your, in your community who are concerned about these issues and, are looking for, for ways of working with other people to do stuff. It's not going to be easy. People are people. There's always going to be conflict, but that's part of, part of what it's all about, you know, is, is learning to work through those issues with each other. Cause ultimately it's not going to be government. It's not going to be business that um, provides the, I'm not, I'm not going to say provides a solution that gets us out of this predicament. <laughs> It's, it's going to be working with each other and helping each other. That, that's, I, I get, would be my message. Thank you so much, Jack. We really, really appreciate your time. Uh, this valuable, valuable conversation. And, and, and I know our listeners will probably have to listen to this two, three times to, to make some really good notes, but hugely invaluable. Very much appreciative of your time. So thank you. Thanks, Jack. Uh, you're very welcome. And again, thank you guys for doing what you're doing. Good on you. Thank you for listening to the Lentil Intervention Podcast. If you found this interesting, make sure you subscribe and share it with your friends.